So, welcome everyone to the Kairos YouTube channel. I'm here with my colleague, Pastor Fraser Pierce. Good to have you with us today, Fraser. Yeah, good to be here. The question for today is, should we expect the church to be hip? In our day, there's often a lot of pressure on um, people, on communities, including churches, to be on trend to be um, at the cutting edge, you know, to be fashionable, um, to be hip, you could say. And sometimes I know, you know, we experience um, this, perhaps particularly from young people, that they, they look around at different churches and maybe um, there's sometimes this expectation that the church too should be hip. Um, I've heard you speak about this with young people sometimes and used a particular um, metaphor, I guess, to, to try and get people to think about this in a slightly different way. Should we expect the church to be hip? I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that today. Well, when I'm speaking to confirmation students especially, that I get this way of thinking in their heads, talking about whether the church should be hip. You know, I think it's a pretty important question here at um, Bethlehem because um, a lot of our congregational worship, well, it's not what they tune into on the radio or watch on YouTube or whatever. Mm -hmm. Often the language is old-fashioned, even archaic. Some of the imagery is not easy to get a handle on. We're singing melodies and stuff that come from centuries ago. They're hardly the sort of melodies that you listen to on their own time. The pastors here, we wear white robes, right. all this sort of stuff, right? There's bowing and there's candles and chanting, all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. right? Not hip. But I get the kids to think about mum, and I ask them, well, is mum hip, right? Is uh, whatever kind of language they use. My, my own kids laugh when I talk this way, is mum groovy or, you know, right. this sort of stuff. This shows how hip we are, by the way, because <laughs> right. I'm not even sure if the word hip is hip. No, no, I'm pretty you get, sure. You get the idea anyway. <laughs> I'm pretty sure hip is actually an unhip word, anyhow. But I get them to have the image in their minds of um, their mums, you know, dancing go-go dancing, wearing a silver spangled boob tube, right? And as soon as they get that image in their mind, they start to laugh because they realise it's rather ridiculous. Mm. But they love their mums, of course, but they don't expect them, you know, to be, you know, disco bunnies and stuff right. like this, right? But they do expect their mums, rightly, to show them love, mm. to nourish them with good things, and perhaps even to encourage, perhaps even sometimes make them eat the sorts of foods they wouldn't normally mm. want to eat. Mm. They recognise that a wise mum does this sort of stuff. And so that's part of household life. Mm. So I encourage the young people to think about church that way. Often they're going to be confronted with things that aren't particularly, well, what should we say, hip, that aren't going to be like what they're talking about with their school friends, this sort mm. of stuff. But they can trust that when they come to church, there'll be people there who show them Christian love, that they'll be fed the gospel, which actually may not always be palatable, mm. or easy to, to receive, and yet really does nourish into spiritual maturity. You know, I think even in the household, you know, mums teach their children their native language. You know, we call it the mother tongue, the, mm. the tongue that we grow up with. And part of that is learning words we don't yet know the meaning of. Yep. We hear them used in the household. We hear them. We make them part of who we are. And we start to learn what they mean, not only as we hear them said, but as we start to use them with other people. And I think that's also how it is with life in the church. There's a lot of language that's used in the church, also, of course, in Scripture, which is why the church uses the language. That is foreign, that's difficult, not the sort of language you're going to hear, generally speaking, on television or in conversation in a schoolyard or wherever. But it's mum speaking, and as we hear these words and start to use them, then I think we do grow. 
So I encourage young people not to expect the church to be hip, but to indeed expect the church to be a place where they experience genuine love, including asking for forgiveness, mm. right? Because the church is not perfect. Um, but they're also expecting to be nourished by mm. what they receive in church. Just like mum. Right, exactly right. And, and if I can push the images a little bit further, I think maybe it's not only that um, we don't expect mum to be hip, but we don't even necessarily want mum no, to be hip. Right. right. And so you imagine these sort of situations, you know, when you're with your friends growing up as a teenager and mum comes in and, and tries to sort of get down to your level and, and be all cool and it's actually awkward, it's embarrassing. And sometimes, to me at least, it can feel like this in the church when we are making these efforts to try and always be uh, relevant that actually it's, it just feels weird. Right. In fact, you know, I think most of the kids that I put into their minds the image of their mum go-go dancing in a silver spangled boob tube would actually, you know, they laugh at first, but they'd cringe if they actually saw it, yeah. especially if the mum was doing it to try and win them over. Mm. It'd be ridiculous yeah. and they'd know it. Yeah. Now, so this picture of the church um, as our mother, um, now I don't think you just made this up yourself, right? No. So this is actually um, part of the way that Christians have thought about the church through history. Um, do you know where that, that picture actually comes from? We get Bride of Christ imagery mm. throughout the New Testament, particularly in the writing of St. Paul, but I think this image is going back to the Old Testament with God's people being seen as a, a wife of God, if you like, or a right. spouse or bride. And so I think it's just there scripturally speaking. Mm. And um, if I had to locate historically speaking when you get, you know, church teachers talking about the church's mother, well, I'd want to go back and, you know, Google it you yeah, know, yeah. to find out. Because you're so hip. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing there, by the way, is I'm talking about whether the church is hip or not. I think one of the things the church does teach us to do is to, um, to give thanks um, and actually to grow in knowledge of ourselves and the world and God actually through gratitude. I think this is part of the mother image too. So, you know, sometimes I'll ask confirmation kids, you know, do your parents feed you? Yes, they do, of course. Um, and when you have lunch or dinner or breakfast, perhaps, do you say thank you? Well, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, right? Not always, of course, do they say thank you for dinner. But I say, you know, I ask them, if you never say thank you, do your parents still feed you? And of course they do. So I say, well, why then say thank you? What's the yeah. point of it? I think that question is actually quite revelatory because there's something about thanksgiving, which is not strictly speaking necessary because the feeding is going to happen anyhow, but it lets us see the person who serves us. Mm -hmm. So you think when you say thanks to your parents, you start to see that they're not machines or robots or slaves, but that they're human beings, that there's human agency, that someone who's made in the image of God is serving you there. Mm. And so to have this um, whole outlook of gratitude and then give it ex giving it expression in simple phrases like thanks, thank you, you know, is actually very important, not just in family life, but I think also then in Christian churchly mm. life, right? It seems to me, and I get this sort of thinking from St. Paul, and particularly in Romans chapter 1, when we give thanks to God, we actually start to see God. And if we refuse to give thanks to God, we're unlikely to see God's activity in our lives. Mm -hmm. I think this kind of lesson comes home to me particularly because of the Lord's Supper, also called the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving, you know, where the pastor prays with Christ the prayer of thanksgiving to the Father. And so we see God through thanksgiving 
not just through that, then through the gifts which God gives, the body and blood of Christ. I just think these things tie together mm. and how gratitude is important. And again, I think the image of parents or, or mum feeding and then saying thank you mm. helps us understand this perhaps more clearly. Mm. Well, Fraser, thanks for talking here on Kairos today. Uh, should we expect the church to be hip? No more than you expect your mum to be hip. Right. Thanks. Hit subscribe, like the video. God bless you. Does being concerned with God's commandments make you a legalist? Hello and welcome back to Kairos. I am Pastor Joshua Pfeiffer here with Pastor Fraser Pierce today. Good to see you as always, Fraser. Always good to be here. Now, Fraser, sometimes in the life of the Christian church, People are concerned about God's commandments. They talk about God's commandments. They teach these things and they make them a focus. And others in the church will sometimes become concerned then that this means that we're slipping into some sort of legalism. Sometimes I think that term is probably thrown around a bit loosely and we're not always careful about actually defining what we're talking about there. So what would you say legalism actually is? And does being concerned with God's commandments make you a legalist? We'll go back a bit. I'll look at the, um, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28. Mm -hmm. There Jesus, after the resurrection, appearing to his disciples, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he says, teaching them to obey, to observe, to keep everything that I've commanded you. Mm -hmm. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So at the heart of the church's mission, at the heart of the life of the Christian household, is observing, keeping the things that Jesus has commanded us. Yeah. So obviously, scripturally speaking, there's no problem with keeping, observing Jesus' commandments. In yeah. fact, it's a great thing to do. There must be a place for it within the Christian faith. It's just finding that proper place. That's right. I think the problem happens when people think that by keeping Jesus' commands or by keeping God's commands, they thereby become members of God's household. Mm -hmm. I think a simple illustration from family life can help us understand what's going on. My children did not become my children because they kept the Pierce household rules. Mm -hmm. Now, we have Pierce household rules. Mm -hmm. Some of them are spoken, some of them are unspoken, but pretty obvious, you know, don't punch each other, mm -hmm. don't flick peas at the table, this sort of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And as a father in the household, I, I want my children to keep these rules. It's important for unity in the household and for good order in the household. Mm. When households descend into chaos, violence, abuse, it's dreadful, can't be sustained. Okay. But my children have not become my children because they keep these commands. They are my children because they were born into the household. Mm. And by being born into the household, they then receive these rules. Mm. So it's not as if a neighbor's kid can come up to my front door, knock on the door and say, I've kept your household rules, I'm now your child. Mm. It doesn't work that way. Right? Yeah. No, no. As my child, my children, they keep the commandments. And you would never want your children to think that 
that their place in the family is dependent on keeping these right. commands. As a father, of course, you would never want that. And yet, as a father, um, it would be somewhat negligent to say, "Don't worry about the rules, kids. Treat your treat your mum, treat your brother and sister, whoever you want." You know, it just just doesn't work. In fact, the household could not stay together yeah. if that happened. You're right. I would not want my children to think that by keeping the rules, they are thereby members of the household. Especially if they started to think this, gosh, I don't keep the rules as well as my brother or my sister, yeah. therefore dad mustn't really love me. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I've broken the household rules, therefore God's going to, well, I'm using it already spiritually, but dad's going to kind of kick me out, right? Mm. This sort of thing. Mm. You know, I also don't want them to compare themselves favourably on this basis. I mm. keep the rules, therefore dad must love me more than he loves my brother or sisters or this sort of stuff, mm. right? Mm. No, no good at all, right? No, I want my children to be assured that I love them, that I'm going to supply good things for them, mm -hmm. that I'm also going to discipline them as it's called for, uh, but they do this because they're my children. Mm. And the, the rules come in after that. Now, I think it'd be legalism, legalism in the household, if I thought by keeping the rules they are there by my children. And I think it's the legalism in God's household if we think that we're God's children because we've kept the commands. Mm -hmm. no, no. We become God's children by grace alone, mm. simply trusting the great promises he gives us in Christ Jesus. Being concerned with God's commandments, it doesn't make us legalists. We don't base our standing with God on keeping his commandments, but as God's dearly loved children in his household, we do seek to live according to the way he would have us live. Right. Fraser, thanks for being on again today. Good to be here. God bless you. So, what would you put up with if you found the Fountain of Youth? Welcome to the Kairos YouTube channel. I'm Joshua Pfeiffer, your host here today again with Pastor Fraser Pierce, my colleague pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Adelaide. And the question that we are addressing today is, what would you put up with if you found the fountain of youth. Now that's a bit obscure, I know, but we are driving towards something here, so just stick with us. In congregational life, phrase, I think it's fair to say that little, you know, tensions and things arise from time to time because of people's personal preferences for things, right? So particularly when thinking of worship, right. you know, so um, musical style, for example, okay? Some people like the organ, some people don't. Some people like the guitar, some people don't. Uh, sometimes it's the sort of people, you know, in, in the congregation, you know, they're, they're not the sort of people I'd, I'd normally hang out with. And so I'm not sure if I really want to be around there, you know. Sometimes it's um, complaints about the pastors not being good looking enough, right? Yeah. So that's the most common one we yeah, receive here at Bethlehem. <laughs> I've heard you talk with people and use a particular image to try and get them to think about these things in a different way. I guess to put it in a bit of perspective. Right. And it's to do with the fountain of youth. I think you know the one I'm talking yeah, yeah. about. Um, so off you go, Fraser. Tell us how you approach this sort of issue. So um, often when, when I'm instructing people in the Christian faith, um, confirmation kids, but also adults, I'll use this sort of imagery, particularly when I'm in giving them instruction on the Lord's Supper, right? Mm. So that section of the small catechism, when it's giving, you know, some wonderful, clear, simple teaching on the Lord's Supper, I'll bring in the imagery of the fountain of youth just to help them think about how this actually relates to worship as Christian people and how God brings us together through the sacrament to grow us in love for each other, to bring a connection, if you like, between the gift of forgiveness, growth in Christian love, and being drawn by God to our heavenly home. 
to eternal life. They use the image of the fountain of youth. So I think most people in Western culture at least have some idea of the fountain of youth. Maybe they've seen something like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or read some books or something like that. That's my education. That's right, exactly right. (laughs) The idea that is you can drink from some fountain and in drinking you have health, longevity, you have um, a well-ordered life, maybe even friendships and all these sorts of things. Life goes well. Just drink from the fountain and there it is. And I'll get them to think about um, the possibility of the fountain of youth being in the church building somewhere. We have buildings here called the stables, a traditional name for a building which is now used for lunches and so forth. And I say to them, imagine you thought, and indeed perhaps there was in the imagination, the fountain of youth there in the stables. Would you want to drink from it? And of course they'd want to drink from it. Who wouldn't want to drink from the fountain of youth? And I say, imagine you go there and you find that they're playing country and western music. Now, most people aren't big fans of country western music. Some people are, and good luck to them. But most people, exactly right, exactly right. But most people wouldn't choose to go to such a venue. But you know what? It wouldn't matter if they're going to drink from the Fountain of Youth. They Mm. could put up with Slim Dusty or Billy Ray Cyrus or whatever it's going to be, right? That's okay. The music's not... Early Taylor Swift. Early Taylor Swift, (laughs) that's right. Early career stuff. They drink from it, they put up with it because the music's not the most important thing. Their tasting music is not why they're there. They're there primarily to drink from the fountain of youth. Mm. And I say, imagine now you go there and you find that there are, there are babies there squawking and perhaps even slightly smelly. Mm. And perhaps even some older folk, people they never hang out with normally, and perhaps they're dressed in a peculiar way or they have some peculiar habits and stuff like that. Or perhaps there are people from, people from different language groups, different skin colours, ethnicities, whatever. I'll ask them, would that stop you drinking from the fountain of youth? And of course not. You'd, those things would be unimportant relative to drinking from the fountain of youth. Mm. And I'd also say things like, imagine there's a custodian there. And the custodian is a bit of a jerk, you know, spits on you when he speaks and so forth, and uh, <laughs> obnoxious and a bit of a know-it-all and so forth. Would that stop you from drinking from the fountain of youth? No, no, it wouldn't. Yeah. And most people can understand this sort of thing. It's pretty straightforward, I reckon. And I get them to think about the fact that Jesus says, and his word is a spirit-filled word, and we listen to this as God speaking to us, that Jesus says of the Lord's Supper, of the bread, this is my body, and of the wine, this is my blood given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. Here we have an eternal gift given to us. Should our taste in music be the main thing, given that's the case? Mm. No. Should it matter if there are people who are different from us there? Should that put us off? By no means. Mm. If we don't get on with a pastor, is that the biggest deal? It's, it's not. Now, of course, music is not an unimportant question. Right. So I think it is important to have music that's fitting, right? So when people say it doesn't matter what music there is, I think, well, really? When people say that to me, I'll ask them, well, when you got married, did you go down the aisle to the Benny Hill theme, right, or to the Simpsons theme? Now, of course they didn't, because they realised that marriage is a serious business, and there'll be a variety of styles of music that people will deem acceptable, you know, for cultural reasons and so forth. But most people know that there are frivolous tunes that aren't fitting mm. for, you know, for a wedding. And I think it's the same also in church. You know, historically and culturally, there can be a range of melodies and so forth that can be used, but you do want to have music that's reverent, that helps the congregation grow in love, that's fitting for the occasion. And it's also good that the pastors aren't jerks, you know, yeah, that yeah. they actually serve or anyone well. Else for that right, yeah. exactly. Or anyone else, that's right. Mm. Um, and 
It is also fitting that we get together with people who are different from ourselves so that we do indeed grow in mm. love. Mm. You know, to my mind, scripturally speaking, if we're meeting with people only who are like ourselves, something's gone wrong. Right. To my mind, we actually grow in love by having to deal with the real business of living with people who are different from us mm. and actually honouring them for their difference, you know, mm. for their cultural differences, their language differences, whatever it's going to be. Learning to live together in love. It's how God works and I think actually, you know, the sacrament in particular is one where we see God in action. Yeah. Yeah, so I've reflected on this for a while. This is one way I have of thinking about it. I've got to say, this picture, it really resonates with my own experience in my journey. Because I think as I was younger, I was one of those people who did fixate a lot on these things like um, musical style and the sorts of people that were in a particular congregation and all that sort of thing. But it was only as I grew in my understanding of what Holy Communion actually is these things were put into a different perspective for me, um, that I could actually see them clearly for what they were. And it was actually Holy Communion, what I came to believe is actually going on there, um, that really was what drew me to worship week by week. But then um, what happened after that, which also resonates with what you were just saying, is that um, some of those people that I would have considered actually not the sort of people I'd normally um, want to spend time with, you actually do grow in love for them right. and, you, and you, you develop affection for all sorts of people you wouldn't expect to over the years as you, as you slowly mature as a Christian bit by bit right. by bit. Um, I think if people have trouble understanding the sort of shape of the liturgy that we've received and that we hand on mm. um, in the Lutheran Church, if they want to understand that, I think a great place to start is to think about the Lord's Supper. Mm. Because if you think the Lord's Supper is primarily something that we do to get to God, or is a symbol of our faith, something that we do to show our faith, it's going to be very hard to understand the liturgy. Mm. But as soon as you start meditating on Christ's words, this is my body, this is my blood, and if you're like taking the imaginative leap that this may be so, mm. maybe truly this is the case, then suddenly I think things, relatively speaking, start to fall into place. Yeah. It makes a lot more sense of what actually goes down. Yeah. I mean, even, for example, things like kneeling to receive communion. Why do we do this? Mm -hmm. It makes more sense when we realise that we're in the presence of the holy and that we come as beggars and that we come to receive from God um, good gifts. Mm. So even I think the body language of worship kind of comes together here mm. when you think about this sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, and this, um, this connection between the fountain of youth and Holy Communion in particular. Again, I'm thinking this wasn't an original idea on your part because I'm thinking of Ignatius in particular, right. I think it was, who talked right. about um, Holy Communion as the medicine of immortality. Right. So it has actually been talked about That's this right. way in the Christian tradition, right. which is very interesting. Look, there's one more thing I'd like to add to. Um, every picture or analogy you know, has limitations yeah. or it can go down the wrong path. And I think the fountain of youth is not bad for what it is, but it's very far from the full picture. Mm. Think about the Eucharistic liturgy where we sing, you know, with angels and with archangels and with a whole company of heaven. Yeah, we're not just talking about an immortal gift here, if you like, mm. but something which mm. um, is a, a way into the deeply mysterious and divinely beautiful. And the, the congregation that we meet with is not just the congregation that we see. So whether with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven, we're drawn into the transcendental, if you like, um, into the gracious presence of God himself. So 
I think even though the fountain of youth is an image I'm happy to use with people mm. to try and mm. teach something, I think actually the reality is a lot more mind-boggling than that. So I thought I'd just add that into yeah, it. That's good. Yeah. That sounds like a good another video too. Yeah, perhaps. Um, well, Fraser, thanks again for being with us today on Kairos. If you like this video, hit like and hit subscribe to keep in touch. What would you put up with if you found the fountain of youth? Keep that in mind. Next time a baby's screaming in church, next time you don't like the musical style at a congregation, keep it in mind what's actually going on in Holy Communion. God bless you. So, would you like to hear the story of the fairy garbage man? Hi, welcome to the Kairos YouTube channel. I'm here with Pastor Fraser Pierce, my colleague Pastor, and I'm your host, Joshua Pfeiffer. We are here to tell you the story of the fairy garbage man. So what on earth are we talking about? Well, this is actually about private confession and absolution. This is a practice in the Christian church where a person confesses their sins to a pastor or a priest, a minister, and they hear the word of forgiveness spoken to them from Jesus Christ himself, spoken by his representative, the pastor. And Fraser, I know I've heard you use this story of the fairy garbage man to um, try and help people think about the sorts of benefits we receive through private confession and absolution. But just before we get to the story itself, I know some people will be thinking, private confession and absolution, aren't you two Lutheran pastors? This isn't a Lutheran thing, is it? Isn't this a Roman Catholic thing? Private confession, is this a Lutheran thing? Well, it is, in fact. So if you read the public teaching of the Lutheran Church, like the small catechism or the large catechism or the Augsburg Confession documents like this, you receive teaching about private confession and absolution. And we say we don't want to get rid of it. In fact, we want to promote it to make sure that it's used, but used in a good way, in an evangelical way, in a way that helps people live by faith, live peacefully, live joyfully. Mm. So they didn't want to get rid of private confession and absolution, but they did want to make sure it was offered in a way that would actually encourage people in the faith, mm. not make them fearful, not make them resentful towards God or the church, but actually build them up in love, that sort of stuff. Now, for all sorts of historical reasons, okay, it hasn't been widely in use in the modern Lutheran church. Right. That's fair to say. And so people do get this impression that maybe it's not such a, a Lutheran thing in modern times. But the other reason I think that it's probably um, not overly well used in, in the modern church is just simply the fact that it can be a very confronting thing to right. do, right? Yeah. Um, and um, in, you know, in my own experience, I... Um, I'm quite thankful for being strongly encouraged to, and I would say even expected to do this when I was confirmed. Um, and the reason I'm thankful for that is that it actually just broke the ice for me in something which I think, I don't know if I ever would have got up the courage to do if it was off my own back. Right. And so I think this is fair to say. I've, I've, I think I've heard you say that um, in your experience, probably most people would prefer to have a tooth pulled out without anaesthetic than name their sins before right. another person. Right. And this is understandable, right? Yeah, and in uh, fact, you know, I did not use private confession and absolution, I don't think ever. Um, with a pastor, nothing like you get in a small catechism there, before I was ordained. Mm -hmm. I thought, once I was ordained, how can I offer this if I'm not also receiving it? Right. So I thought, I'm now really obliged to start using this 
if I'm going to exercise my ministry with any integrity or authenticity. And I'm really glad, you know, that mm. I did start doing that. It's mm. been very helpful to me, mm. and it's um, growing me in a knowledge of who God is, how God works, mm. and also how we live together in community. Yeah. But, you know, um, it's a, just a strange fact that I, I didn't use it um, mm. until I had to, if you like. Yep. <sighs> The fairy garbage man. Right. So one of the ways that I have heard you encourage people in the practice of private confession and absolution is to really try and think about what it is we receive through this. And you have this little parable, I guess you could say, called the fairy garbage man. Right. Tell, tell, us, the, tell us the story of the fairy garbage man. Yeah, so the story involves you sitting at home, you know, and you're sitting in the, the lounge watching telly and you hear a knock on the door. Well, you go to the door, you open it up, and there in front of you, it's a very large figure, a man with a big bushy beard wearing a blue tank top, stubbies, you know, those blue shorts. He's wearing thongs that are elsewhere called flip-flops, you know. <laughs> and he's got little wings and a little halo, and he's floating about two inches above the ground. And he says, hi, I'm the fairy garbage man, and I've come to buy your garbage. You think this is surely a figment of your imagination. You've got to close the door on this madness, but he pulls in a big wad of hundred buck notes. They held together with a silver clip, and he flips off a note and says, here's a hundred bucks. I'd like to buy your garbage. Well, there it is. So you go down to the kitchen, and you look in the bin, and there's a chop which has been chewed by the dog. It's, it's garbage, all right. It's in the bin for a good reason. So you take it out, you walk up the hallway, take it to the fairy garbage man. Mm. He's delighted. He looks at it. This is exactly what I'm after. Mm. Gives you a hundred bucks. What else you got, he says. You go back to the kitchen, you look again in the bin, there's a banana peel. Slightly slimy. Okay, you take it out. That's surely garbage. Mm -hmm. You go to the fairy garbage man, he looks at it, he's delighted. This is exactly the sort of thing he's after. Mm -hmm. Gives you a hundred bucks, there it is. What else have you got? Well, of course, you've got to go back to the bin, aren't you? Drag it to the front door and go through all the contents because, man, that's now gold. What was garbage is changed by the appeal of the fairy garbage man. Eventually the bin's empty, he'll ask you, what else have you got? Then you start to see other things in the house also as being transformed, if you like, by the money you'll get for it. You know, a half-used pencil. Even that could become garbage in relation to a hundred bucks, right? Mm -hmm. Now tell that story to encourage people to think about God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. That when we confess our sins, it's not simply that the garbage gets taken away, but that God gives us peace in mm -hmm. return. You know, as long as we think it's just garbage, we can let it settle like we can with our own garbage in our bins. Just leave it there. But once we realise we can get stuff for it, our vision of what sin is and what God can do with our sin changes in how we think about our lives, what we're willing to confess and how we can live. So I think, you know, confessing sins before God, receiving a word of absolution in Jesus' name, an absolution which is spirit-filled, actually can transform the way we live. It's one way that God gives the gift of forgiveness. It comes in many ways, of course. Mm. Sometimes people say, you know, do we have to use this? Well, no one's saying you have to use it. Mm. But it's there. If you'd like to use it, go for it, mm. right? Mm. I find sometimes people experience kind of addictive patterns of behavior, and they can't find this very helpful for dealing with this sort of thing. Even something, for example, like, you know, pornography addiction or something. Actually naming it yeah. as a sin actually hearing, not condemnation, but a word of forgiveness in Jesus' name, mm. can actually be wonderfully liberating. Mm. And rather than feeling small or useless um, or on the margins in the darkness, 
they start to realize they are sons, they are daughters of God, loved by God, freed by God to live a new way. Mm. Right? Mm. Now, of course, people are going to need encouragement. We all do. And if we lived perfect lives, we wouldn't need a savior. But God gives this gift for our salvation and help. It's one of the gifts. It's a great parable. It's a great image. And um, one of the things I, I like about it too is that everybody has garbage in their house, right? And actually, it's pretty similar, I reckon, right. from house to house. And I think one of the things that sometimes um, prevents people from using private confession and absolution is, is just the shame and embarrassment. Right. They, they think, oh, there's no way um, that pastor could know my sins. Right. Whereas... Um, I've heard other pastors say, I certainly don't have as much experience in hearing confessions as, as um, you do. But I've heard other pastors with a lot more experience say, you know, sins are so unoriginal, oh. actually. You know, and, and, and pastors never get shocked by what they hear because it's, relatively speaking, the same things over and over. Right. Just like garbage is actually pretty similar. Right. Knows how, that's another thought that springs to mind. Yeah, I, mean, I think people don't realise how dull their sins actually are. <laughs> they, they, they think they're very exciting, but yeah. they're, they're dull, actually. I think also about a dentist working on tooth cavities, right? Mm. Oh, I mean, is the dentist going to get excited by tooth cavities? Mm. Yeah, they're dull. They need to be attended to, mm. right? And a mm. good dentist will mm. attend to the tooth cavities. I think it's a bit like that pastorally speaking as well. People's sins, my own sins, really are frankly dull. Mm. Um, they're like tooth cavities. They're like garbage. Mm. Yes, clean them up. You know, the real excitement is in things that work well, yeah. right? That's where you get real beauty and um, goodness and, um, in life. So, yeah, I think yeah. this is also how I think. Righteousness, holiness, glory, that's interesting. That's right. Yeah. So even think about music, you know, music which has this sort of a harmony to it and beauty to it. It's very attractive. Mm. I mean, it's mm. not working, it becomes unattractive. It's nothing really to grab your attention. Mm. So that's the parable of the fairy garbage man. Thanks, Fraser, no for worries. being with us again today. If you enjoyed this video, hit like down below, subscribe to the channel to keep in touch. God bless you.